maybe I shouldn't say that, but I hope that uh, my NIH sponsors will not listen to this. Almost everything that you do can induce such mutations as an artifact. I think in principle, almost all cells are naturally immortal. People who are now uh, in their 70s, they, they can be in great health and they are still very productive. That was never the case. It was so... And in the old days, I mean, almost nobody survived until their 70s. And even if they did, they were not in very good shape. I can assure you that. Now some people are. Hello, everybody. Jan is a foremost expert on DNA aging and the cutting edge of innovation. If you ever wondered about the secrets of longevity or the mysteries behind DNA mutations, Jan avails it all, taking us on a captivating journey from the forefront of AI advancements to the societal shifts in modern China. Whether you're a DNA aficionado or just intrigued by the wonders of science and aging, let's stay curious and learn on this episode of Learning with Lowell. What is the biggest contribution to science in relation to your work? In your opinion? Well, well, I can only, of course, give my opinion. Maybe you would yes. ask my colleagues, they may vehemently disagree and they may think it's not mm -hmm. that important. But I worked my whole life on changes in DNA. So changes in the genetic material in, our, in, our, in the cells of our body, uh, based on the hypothesis that such changes are more or less random. Some of them are deleterious and they cause aging. But the problem was that it was very difficult to measure. There were no good assays for that. And I think... If you, if somebody would mention my name in the context of, well, scientific accomplishments, I guess that's what it is, developing methods to actually detect uh, these events, which are fairly rare and they're random. The genome is big. I mean, we have uh, two times three billion base pairs. So you, you can imagine that it's not easy, so like a needle in a haystack, to find uh, these individual changes when single bases are, are, are basically changed for another one. That, that's not, a diff, not an easy thing to do. So we developed uh, systems, first uh, animal models, mouse models and fly models to measure such events. And more recently, we measured single cell sequencing. So we were probably the first or actually one of the two first labs who managed to have a protocol to actually take single cells and then do a whole genome sequencing of a single cell and literally look for these needles in haystacks, so mutational changes. And it turned out there were actually quite a lot more than uh, was suspected for a while. So this, this strengthens us in the idea that such mutations could actually be a cause uh, of the aging process. So I think that is basically, if you, if you ask me about a, a major contribution, that is a major contribution. But I also think because I always had two interest. If you have another question, you can ask it now, but I was going to mention the oh, second, what I think. Yeah, because I always had two interests. One was biology, and that's where I ended up to be in my professional life. But the other one was history. I always enjoyed history, and I really had to think very hard if I was if I would study biology or history. It, it was biology, but I never forgot history, and I read a lot. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching thank you for everyone thus far who has commented liked, subscribed and told their friends and i published a book uh, in 2011 i think it was already time flies uh, and that was history in a, in, a, in a way history of technology history of science because i i realized at some point when i was in a in a plane it was in 2017 i guess 2016 i can't remember it exactly I was on a plane from the Netherlands, from Amsterdam to New York. And I was always thinking that science, that science and technology went faster and faster and faster. I think most people would say that. 
Mm-hmm. And I was a strong believer in that. And then I realized suddenly I was in a plane. I was also in the same plane in 1983, my first trip to the United States. And it was really nothing different. It was still a Boeing 747, the same plane. Well, it was not exactly the same plane, but the exact mm-hmm. same model, of course. And it uh, it wasn't there any earlier. It wasn't any more comfortable. And then I re- realized, wait a minute, is technology really increasing so fast? And then I started to study it. And my conclusion was that it stalled. It had stalled already uh, starting in the 1970s. And then I started to study it. And for that purpose, you need to study history to look into how is technology arising? How do people make inventions? My conclusion was that you could see that inventions, more and more inventions were made over time. For a long time, you couldn't see much, but in the 19th century, you saw an enormous increase in the number of inventions per year, per 10 years, it doesn't matter how you calculate it. And that went on until probably around the 1960s or early 1970s, and then it stopped. People would argue, well, and how about the iPhone? That's what everybody told me. Everybody thought I was crazy when I first came up with it. My wife said, come on, you're crazy. Technology goes faster and faster. We all know that. Look at the iPhone. Actually, of Mm -hmm. the 10 people that I talked to, I think all 10 came up with the iPhone as an example. You can imagine smartphones that make an impression. And it's certainly extremely useful. But is a smartphone as useful as indoor plumbing? I mean, I don't think so. I would prefer to have indoor plumbing and be able to take a shower. With clean mm-hmm. water. In my opinion, those were the really important inventions. Think of electricity. If you have to choose between access to, uh, to a smartphone or electricity, what would you take? My, my bet is if you would start to realize how you use this, it would be electricity. So those were far more important inventions. So I wrote that book and I thought first, I just did it because I was stubborn. That was my opinion. And everybody mm-hmm. said, no, it's impossible. So I had to prove that I was right. So I wrote that book. And I did find a publisher for it, so it was it came out. And then I got a phone call from uh, Robert Gordon, who's a famous economist in, in Chicago, actually, so not too far from where you are. And he called me, he said, I'm on my way to a conference, and uh, I'm going to a conference shortly of economists, and I saw your book. I'm writing a book like that. Of course, he's a professional economist, so it was far better than mine, far more scientific. And so, but he said, this is exactly the same. So you're not the only one who thinks so. There are a couple of more quite well-known economists who also draw that conclusion. And then they start to invite me for economics conferences, which is, I guess, interesting when you're a biologist. So I really feel that it's probably also an accomplishment that I'm pretty proud of. But again, maybe I'm still, I, I'm always careful in drawing conclusions. I guess most scientists have that. So I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody would correct me and say, no, no, you look at it from a completely different way. But still, it, it turned out to be an interesting observation, at least, that was shared by others. So those are the two, mm-hmm. two things that I believe, uh, yeah, you can call that an accomplishment. I don't know. Other people should, of course, decide it. But. Yeah. The, so do you consider now with like this AI machine learning wave to be yeah. innovation yeah. again? It's an excellent point. Uh, And that's also why I sort of came across maybe as a little bit hesitant because again, I never thought I'm sort of like an oracle. So how can I know, you know, I'm not even a professional economist, but Mm -hmm. I do believe that when you really study carefully, uh, that even artificial intelligence, well, you know, it's artificial. Yes, but you all know it's really not intelligence, not it's essentially, 
the possibility to look at an enormous amount of data in a fairly short time. And that's only because of the increased power of chips. And that's, we call that micro inventions, not the, the, the macro invention was the computer and the chip. But then to improve the chip, to make it more powerful, more powerful, more powerful, that's a matter of making uh, very small improvements on it. But altogether, those small improvements, they add up, not? We now they can add that using UV. So the power of these computers became much uh, bigger all the time. And that allowed what we now call artificial intelligence. But we should not com confuse it with true intelligence. Simply the sheer power of those systems, the amount of data they can search through in a very short time. And that is data, of course, uh, on, on our daily life. Not There's an enormous amount of facts. So normally you can, ima you can imagine the way you can do that, it would come across as intelligent. But we sometimes forget it's not really intelligent. It's just simply making these kind of connections. I don't, I don't want to say that this is not an important accomplishment. I do believe it is. But I still don't really think it is a sign that uh, our society is continuing on this enormous mm -hmm. increase in inventions that were made in the 19th and early 20th century. I mean, look, for example, if you want to travel and want to buy a ticket from New York to Tokyo, it's still a very cumbersome trip that takes equally long as in the 1960s and it's very very uncomfortable i would say even more uncomfortable so why didn't they started to work with uh, hypersonic planes and make that trip in in, a, in an hour is it really not possible to do that that would that would have been a real important invention in my opinion yeah the um yeah the ChatGPT is all these things right now. I think they're just probability engines where they've taken what has currently been out there in the corpus of data that they build off of, and it's more like they have a they have a segment, and based on the letter word that they're at right now, what's the prob they have like a weighted probability of what the next word is most likely going to be, and then they put that in there. And so I think like when I look at it and I think of intelligence, it's like I do see your point. It's more like it's a probabilistic machine, which is different than you know the ability to like reason and make judgment of the world around you it is making judgment but it's like it's like the chinese box box philosophy uh this philosophical problem where if you're in a in, if you're in this box and someone like handed you a book and you have like no external stimuli you probably know this but for people who don't the and then you have um so you have like a bunch of chinese letters that come in like basically letters that you don't understand and then you have a transcription tool that says like for every you know, cube, you do this, you do forever triangle, you do this, and then you output the result from this uh, transcription tablet, but you don't understand anything. You're just, you know, compiling and putting it out there. That's kind of what AI and machine learning is doing right now, which is still very useful that we can take all this information, synthesize it down and make something useful from it. One thing that I think like, is, is separating, and I think they're trying to work on this now, is the, like, the truthiness of the system, where the, the machine learning algorithms, as they sit right now, it's not... It, they don't determine what's real. It's just more what's probable versus like if, if you and I were, were asking the question, what's the nearest restaurant? And it could probabilistically guess based on if you had enough information where it is. But there is there's like a true statement of what is the nearest restaurant that we would immediately go to based on our reasoning of what true is. Like there's like a shared truth. I think that's different where like there it's more like a continuation of this Internet thing where like anything could be real. And that's kind of dangerous in its own way, where I think like intelligence is the ability to discern from truth and, and, and fiction. And um, I think they had hyper, hyper, hypersonic planes, but they, they're never profitable enough. Well, uh, that 
could be the argument. By the way, I didn't want to say that uh, things like ChatGPT are not inventions. I think you can make the argument, I think by now, that that yeah. qualifies as a, as a major invention. But of course, even then, you can simply count the number of these major inventions. And it's simply much less than in the past. That's sort of what I mean. I don't say mm. that our progress in technology is declining. Uh, I just say that it it may still increase, but marginally so. It's really much less than in the past. So mm. that's sort of the only thing I'm, 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 I want to argue. So it's not going as fast as people think it is. Sorry, you said something so. else, but I, I, I forgot. No, I was just, uh, I was just commenting. I think we had a profitable, th- like the, oh, the, the hypersonic planes. Motion. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was well, just going to comment. I disagree. I really disagree because oh, okay, it, it would be exactly the same argument as people when we had propeller planes in the nineteen fifties, and then somebody invented the jetliner. I mean, then the the airlines never never said it would not be profitable, but it was still not easy for them to fit it into their schedules because, of course, because the speed, the planes were much faster. Not So this is the same story. I mean, the, the Concorde, when it flew, it had a big mm-hmm. market. It made a profit. Most people don't know that. They say, well, it, was, uh, it didn't work very well. It was too expensive. Actually, people did use it. They were willing to pay a lot, and they made money on it. The Concorde never, it, it simply was... Uh, taken away because of the airlines they have their own schedule and they preferred they prefer to charge you for an extra bag rather than uh, uh, making major technological improvement in the times of Howard Hughes then individuals could still make their choice and they decided to go for high tech everybody wanted to do that but all these big companies like governments and so on they've been taken over by by bean counters in fact not yeah I, I don't mean that denigrating actually because they do a lot of good things. So they would absolutely not take the decision to do, uh, to go for this big new thing. They wouldn't do it. It doesn't matter if if it, uh, okay, they can argue it doesn't make uh, enough profit, but they can never know that. They just think on the short term, it's better for our bottom line to charge for the extra back. Think of, think of it this way. In the, in the 15th century, there was a man called Columbus who decided that a shortcut to China would be uh, to go west. We, of course, all know what the consequences of that was. But initially, he had to go to governments. He went to uh, his home city in Italy, uh, Genova, and they said, no, no, because you miscalculate uh, China. Yeah, you're right. The Earth is a sphere. We all know that. It's a myth that people thought that the Earth was flat. Only the stupid ones uh, thought so. So they said, but China is really much further. You cannot make it with your ships. You die. Okay, he went to Portugal. And in Portugal... They said exactly the same thing. They said, you're not going to make it. It's too far. He went to Spain. They said exactly the same thing. Then the woman who was queen, Isabel, she just conquered Granada and she was happy. And she thought, well, give the man three ships because you never know. He may find some islands like, of course, he will never get to China, but he may discover some new islands uh, like the Azor Islands as Portugal had, you know, so give it a try. It doesn't matter. She was happy. She won the war and she gave him a little bit of money, three ships, who cares? Okay. Well, we know the consequences of that. That's not a scientific consequence. It's random. The guy Mm -hmm. had, the guy was wrong. Obviously he was wrong, but many scientists who are wrong when they make, when they have hypotheses and they think this is going that way. But if you fund them, doesn't need to be that much. Like you give to Columbus. Okay. Nine out of 10, maybe 99 out of a hundred, they go wrong. But sometimes they hit it big, not? And that's how science moves. But if you have people all bean counters and everybody 
agrees that we should always think before we take decisions and then calculate the chances. If you're just talking about chat GPT, they work like that too. And we say, no, no, the chance that you will actually, that you will make it is very slim. So we're not going to fund it. That's the problem. Mm. Uh, it's, in a way, it's not a problem, of course. You can argue, well, it's the right way. Yeah, but then our society will stay as it is always. It will never make the big breakthroughs anymore. That is the choice you have to make. We live in a great society as compared to the 1950s, not? but we are no longer that innovative. And that is because we don't want to be that innovative anymore. We really prefer to think very carefully what are our chances. And then we have a program like ChatGPT and it says, no, chances are very low that you will be able to hit the jackpot and uh, discover a new continent or, hit or, or, or reach China. But still, he did it. And we all know the consequences of that one, no? Yeah. I think the a symptom of what you're referring to is kind of like with uh with spacex if if at, at the current if you delete phase spacex current trajectory we would have you know single stage uh, single use rockets which is pretty dumb and all the like they he's they've really pushed the envelope forward and made something where you can have reusability these big rockets that are the, the biggest things that have ever existed in terms of rocketry that can actually take off and land and um all, so it seems like a symptom of what you're talking about, where if it wasn't for these outlandish individuals just trying to do something really wild and push for the moon, uh, we might not have gone back to the, like, there's there's a good chance that we're back on the moon building a base or even Mars by the end of the decade. Uh, or before, it probably would, you know, 2100 maybe, I don't know, like, because it's like you fund it a little bit, then they stop funding a little bit, then they stop probably like what you're talking about. And so, like, you need these out outlandish people to, like, kind of deviate and uh, show that things can be done, and then it inspires the whole, you exactly. know, step up. Yeah, I think that might be a symptom I, of what you're talking about. I completely agree with you. That's actually I used that example in my 2011 book, although then mm. uh, Elon Musk was not that well known, and uh, nobody could predict that he would be so successful with both Tesla and and uh, and his rocket company. But essentially, I use him as an example of somebody who's, as you said, outlandish. Okay, he has this kind of things that he wants to do, wants to go to Mars. And this, this kind of people we need, you know, if you have some somebody like that, you will reach the skies, literally. That's what's going to happen. It has always been like that in history. But of course, as you also know, Elon Musk is not that popular. He never got the Nobel Prize, although if anybody would deserve it, I believe it's him, but he didn't get it. Okay, he may be a nasty guy. I don't know that. That's what people say, and I don't care. But the fact mm -hmm. of the matter is you have to look carefully who is deserving. And I think he is deserving for that. He may be very rich, may not need it, doesn't matter. I think it's time that people acknowledge that this is one of those great individuals who had a, a vision and actually made it happen. And that's really important. Yeah, I think the it's the same with even based on everything he touches, the electric EVs, they uh, they went from being very rare to now Ford, like every major or automobile uh, organization I think has their own EV. Ford's actually looks pretty nice, better than the the Cybertruck in my opinion. But the and they're all getting on Tesla's charging network and stuff. So like that, he's doing it a lot in those different ways. I think it's like that problem with the great man theory. I think people have this problem where like it takes one great person to do something big versus like there's a sublimation of of uh, will and then like there's like a catalyst that changes it over. Um, but at the same time, I think historic historic. You can make the argument either way. I think that's probably like a philosophical thing. But uh, like another thing is the Steve Wozniak, I think was talking about 
this principle you're talking about where he said that we're at, an, we're at a point where you can't you can't build a whole phone. You can't innovate a whole new thing like you could in the 60s and 70s because like when he was in the 60s and 70s, he knew the whole Apple II or Apple One, the whichever one it was, like the Mac, the Macintosh yeah. One, I forget the names, but he knew the whole thing, the circuitry, like he did the whole thing. Even the person who came and did like the, the fans or whatever, um, he understood what he was doing. So he could understand the whole part because it was simple enough and yet had the big impact of something new coming into the market where now the people who make the apps on the phone don't understand like under the underlining you know layers that get that to be rendered the the technology or what have you it's a like a that's why there's a lot of money in apps i think you know in general because like everything's been abstracted to the point where you can just work on your one percent differentiation from you in a different company and there's no one really building anything that can know how to build everything really completely um like that anymore i think uh, another example like we're gonna keep like harping on elon musk because he does this this principle very well where even with his complex technology he he has this uh design principle where delete it and if it still works as well why did you have it like get rid of it uh because there's a lot of times like people add stuff and they don't realize why they're adding it and even like he gives a bunch of examples of this but like the the system for the biggest rockets actually really uh simple and even his new um plants to make electric cars they, they're getting it so simple where they can basically like uh like mold it all in like one mold like a, an entire car chassis where before it had like all these different little parts that you had to do so it sounds like uh, steve wozniak is kind of saying something similar to you where things have gotten really complicated and it's gotten in the way of like these big things that can be built and then elon musk's way to like my guess is to get around that fact to start doing big innovation is he's taken complex complexity and synthesized it down really simply and um design wise just kept deleting things so you could innovate largely on it i think it's like we might it's just my thought on what we're talking about but the what if the reason that we don't innovate as much as we used to is because there's so much complexity you can't see the forest for the trees anymore yeah, absolutely. Like, so you need uh, big brains uh, to understand yeah. link it all together yeah and also you need somebody to see through things that seem to be very complicated and then simplify them. I guess that's what Steve Jobs did, not when he, uh, well, sort of modified the mouse. The mouse existed, but it was extremely complicated. And he basically managed to simplify it and make it into a product. I mean, many inventions, of course, they start very early and then nobody's doing something. And then they don't count as inventions because, I mean, they say that Hero of Alexandria invented the steam engine. But of course, mm -hmm. uh, 2000 years ago, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't really use it. It wasn't followed up. The principle wasn't followed up. Actually, they couldn't follow it up then because there was not enough basic information. The knowledge base was simply too small. And in the uh, 19th, 18th, 19th century, there was much more information about, about uh, gases and pressure and everything. So that's why it was possible to develop the steam engine then. But again, it, it must be followed up. You must have a, a product out of it that actually shows success. Otherwise, it doesn't count, in my opinion. Is there um, in science the way I, I understand it to work is everything is quite incremental. There's a there's even like a brain computer interfaces. I think there's a psi something, and then there's paradromics, and there's Neuralink. Neuralinks uh, has a bunch, a lot of really new novel stuff to it, but like paradromics and other brain computer interfaces, they're like they're like maybe ten times better than what was currently on, on the market. But that was like something that was developed like twenty years ago, so it kind of makes sense. But um, my my question is for 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 science. It seems like it's always incremental unless you have an outlandish person like Elon coming into it. So then, how do we how do we encourage people 
because especially in like the sciences and academia, like it's a like publisher payroll. So then you're kind of like pushed to not do hard, innovative things like easy, like, oh, I have a pretty good idea. This is going to work out because I want to continue funding and whatnot. Yeah, a lot of things in science are incremental, but uh, I think they are also like, like that in physics and many other disciplines. But uh, look at, there are major inventions uh, like CRISPR, for example, to, to edit uh, genes. That, that's basically, in my opinion, really a, a major invention that, that comes across once in, well, maybe not once in a lifetime, but certainly it's rare. And that was also uh, very important. So I do, th I do think, yes, there are incremental progress, but sometimes there are also big steps. And this is one example of it. It would be sort of the same, I guess, in the topic I'm working on, on in aging, when you would be able to come up with a principle or some invention, maybe, or discovery that would really allow you to increase the lifespan of, uh, of an animal species. That would be such an accomplishment, but it has, of course, never happened. Yeah, if you, so if, if you could take all the incremental, if you, if you knew you were gonna have guaranteed funding for the next 10 years, how would that change the way you would approach science in your lab? Sorry, say that again. Uh, if, if, I if, you, if, you, if you knew funding was taken care of for the next 10 years, how would that um, change the way you, you'd approach your science projects, research? Uh, well, uh, Strange enough, I don't think it would change a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never had, since I came to the United States, I never had a reason to complain about my funding. So I think it's not really my funding that is uh, the limiting factor here. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I hope that uh, my NIH sponsors will not listen to this. But but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a matter of you need to have good people who, who uh, and you need a little bit of luck also. And you need to continue to hammer on it. I guess that's sort of the idea. So. So then you are going to make progress. But I do know what I want to do. I don't think uh, when somebody would donate me money for doing work for 10 years, well, I can come up with something. It's not a problem, of course, but it would be something that I'm doing already anyway. I, I always had problems in saying, okay, now I want to, now somebody will give you uh, whatever X million dollars, but you have to come up with something different. Well, I don't want to come up with something different. I work my whole life on the same thing and it's not there yet. It's really... Mm to think so i want to continue working on that it, it sounded like a minute ago that you if like one way to throttle it up would be adding more great people to the mix are there people then that you're missing that you don't have either expertise or otherwise well yeah that's of course uh, always the problem you need to uh, need good people but since you uh, it depends a little bit what your attitude is i'm pretty hands-on so Technically speaking, in the lab, that I, I don't work there. So I'm not, well, I, I know, of course, what they're doing, but I'm not somebody who uh, who tells them how to pipe at X, Y, and Z, and so on. That, I, I just have no time for that, and I cannot do that anymore. And also, maybe I wouldn't be good enough. A long time ago, as a student myself, maybe I was, but certainly no longer like that. It's actually even more complicated because there's all this computational work that needs to be done. We call it bioinformatics. I really, I'm not from that area. I, I have great difficulty in basically keeping up with that and understanding when what my people are doing with all that all those calculations of them. I sort of have to trick them sometimes to make sure that I'm not going wrong anywhere. So, I mean, in my opinion, uh, even to have a lot more money uh, wouldn't really do the job. I mean, you would, you get people, you have to be lucky. They just come and, and they know 
don't know often themselves if they will do great deeds. That will only show after a while. So you try to talk to them and give them the right input, and then you hope that they are good workers, that they make no mistakes. That's actually the, mo the, the most crit critical problem here. Because you, the, the experiments, there are usually 100 steps at least. So you can imagine when you have an error rate of 1%, most people would consider that pretty good, not 1% error. But I would not, because it would mean that uh, it goes wrong 100% of the time. Not if, if you have 100 steps and your error rate is 1%, it always goes wrong. So you can imagine you need to have people who are extremely accurate, who are focused on what they're doing. And not everybody has that. It's it's not a matter of uh, they don't want to work hard or they're not, or they're, but not everybody has that, has that uh, talent. So yeah, and then some people they come in and they uh, they don't work out, and, and but most others do. In fact, I I'm a great believer of uh, that everybody who's willing can do the job, mm. make them enthusiastic, and they will do it. Uh, people are different. That's of course the nice thing about uh, science. You can meet everybody, and you, you know, always have the same people. I like diversity very much. So. Yeah, it it's that it sounds like. The stress of needing to get it perfect every time would be pretty, pretty intense. The, yeah, true. yeah it's like, it'd be like, you know, it's like almost like neurosurgery in the sense of like, you know, you make an error and like some, you know, absolutely. Neurosurgery yeah, is much, you know, worse, but you know, if the, if the experiment goes wrong, yeah. then, um, and then you yeah, have to like track works. it too, like debugging it. Like if you, if you do something wrong, it'll inf Im impact the results. So then you have to debug where it went wrong as quickly as you can and then get back on the road or else like really derailed. Cause if, I guess the worst thing would be if there was an error, like someone messed up and they didn't know didn't know how to detect if they did something wrong, and then you have results that are then based off that faulty data, and then you think, oh, did I succeed or not? And you're like, well, I don't know. Like, what is this? You have to like like the the trust system. It's like really important. That's actually a very good point. It's not just the trust system. Of course, that uh, that's important too. Uh, you always have to avoid that your students uh, and postdocs who work for you. They know, of course. Sort of the hypothesis that you have, the direction that your work is going. So you have to be very careful that they do not find or what they believe you want. You always have to mm. tell them, look, don't do what I tell you. And they laugh and they say, no, I mean that. You just don't. You don't follow me. You just follow yourself. You have a, you have an, you have a certain uh, responsibility for your results, and the results are what, what makes this important. If the results argue against the hypothesis, it probably is wrong. And it's very important to make sure that uh, people take notice and that it is being published. Yeah, you may not get it in the best journals because they like spectacular results, true, but at least you followed on your responsibilities and you publish the truth. And it's the only thing that, uh, that is important in science. Just you want to know what's going on. You want to know the truth. And that's why you come up with those complicated hypotheses and ways to test the hypothesis. And yes, you were right. Sometimes there's a bug in the system and then uh, you have to go through it detail after detail. And that's what I usually do in the lab meetings. The person who, is the, who has the problem then is talking because my reasoning is this, that person must know the most of it because this person is doing all the work, not? It's the only mm -hmm. thing she is doing. So of course they know, the, they know everything. So how can we help them? We really cannot. The only way to help them is to let them talk to force them to explain in intricate detail what they did. I even asked them how they hold their hands. Everything I asked them, every minute detail. And I let them think and tell, talk and talk, and then they find out what went wrong. 
We mm. never find it out. They find out what went wrong. Suddenly they realize, oh, I did it. I did this. That's wrong. Wait a minute. Okay. And then they know it. So that's really the, the, the way to debug. But you're right. Sometimes uh, you cannot, it doesn't work. And mm. you have to accept that too. You try something else. And that's what we do. So you have to be persistent. Is there an aspect of your research that's the most complex part? Just on the outside, I would assume it's the debugging. Like when it happens, it would be the most complex part because you have to like, um, you're kind of blind and you're uh, focusing on one person. But of the, like, preparing to working with the, the mice, like what would be the, the, like the really complex parts? Yeah, I don't work with mice anymore, but uh, the com most complex part in my research all the time has been artifacts. Because uh, as I said in the beginning, we are looking for uh, changes in DNA mutations, and and those are not only pretty rare and they are completely random, but unfortunately there's a source of enormous artifact. Almost everything that you do can induce such mutations as an artifact. So you, our whole work is essentially nothing else than trying to avoid artifacts, coming up with smart ways to make systems. Uh, foolproof and uh, sort of try to understand uh, if something that you find is true or artifacts that is very difficult when my people come up with results that sounds that look too good to be true i usually assume it's not true and those are artifacts and i almost tell them and after a while you can smell artifacts and it's uh, not a very scientific way of saying it but it simply means that you have so many, you have seen so many things in your life, and you have such an enormous amount of knowledge that you don't even know. You don't know where it's stored in your brain that you can see immediately this is not real, and then it usually turns out it is not real. But but that can be very uh, frustrating, of course, and then you have to start all over again when you find out those are all artifacts. But artifacts is what we is our big problem with everything we do because the events that we are looking for are so rare. They are rare. They do happen and they're also random. So you have to search through this whole DNA molecule for an error and it could easily be an artifact. So you need to know this. You need to come up with procedures that avoid the artifact. So that's really our big problem. Uh, when the when there are DNA mutations like that, is it is it design, like a design deliberate mutation in terms of the organism in the sense of like they're trying to adapt to something or is it just like an accident that happens but that then maybe will be propagated on kind of like a chicken and egg thing? I'm just wondering like what's the ad advantage to allowing that error rate in DNA like versus like just pinching it off and um... yeah. Well, the advantage is, uh, is, well, you could argue there is no advantage, but think of it this way. Mm. I mean, mutations in DNA are the basis are the basis of life not life is based on two factors one is mutation so the the occurrence of random changes in dna and the second is selection so the far far majority of random changes in dna are either neutral that do nothing or they're bad for you but very rarely there's a positive effect and of course that's what evolution is based on not it picks up that uh, change in in one of your characteristics and it turns out to be an to be an advantage, and and it is selected for. This is how our, our the entire diversity of life finds its origin, mm -hmm. not in that kind of mutations. So in that sense, mutations are essential, even. So, but we are multicellular. We are not single cellular organisms. We have multiple somatic cells and we have germ cells. 
So our germ cells, of course, when there's a mutation in the germ cells, it shows up in the entire organism and all somatic cells. And then suddenly uh, your child has uh, maybe blue eyes rather than brown eyes, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they can be a little different. And sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's a disease. And the child, the child dies fairly early from a genetic disease. That can happen. But there are also many mutations that occur in the somatic cells. And we hypothesize that the accumulation of those changes over the whole lifetime will, is the cause of aging. That's basically what we, what we see. Now, nature wouldn't, get, wouldn't care because nature never cares about what happens uh, at later ages. They want you to reproduce when you're still young, of course. And then what happens after you have reproduced, there's less of a premium there. So our whole life on our planet is based on reproduction. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that counts. And that, that's just cycles of reproduction. And the organisms that do that, they have different lifespans because it depends on your environment. You adapt to a certain needs. When you are a bird, you can fly. You are less susceptible to predation, I guess, than when you're a mouse. So that's why uh, most birds live longer than uh, small mammals. Not A mouse doesn't live very long in nature. A mouse dies from cold or from predation fairly early when it's a couple of months old, maybe six months or so. But in our laboratory, it can live until 30 months. Then it still dies because now it can age. But in nature, there's no aging, virtually never. So uh, the process doesn't occur in nature and because nature doesn't care. So mm-hmm. when you have reached a certain age, then nature doesn't really mind if there's further damage and damage and damage in your somatic cells because you have done your reproduction and you can go by the wayside. That's sort of the mm-hmm. argument. Well, they call it the disposable soma theory. It means your soma is disposable as long as you have created your offspring and your offspring is a little bit different from you from you and that is necessary because the environment changes all the time so when uh, there are big environmental changes maybe almost every individual of a species may die except a few that happen to have the right mutations it's a completely random process but they ha- happen to be there so they survive and they create new offspring who also have that mutation so that's sort of yeah. in a nutshell what biology is all about but mm-hmm. that is also the reason that we age, because we age because nature has no interest in uh, maximizing uh, our lifespan. They only have an interest in letting us reproduce and getting a large diversity of species that adapt to the environment. That's what it is. Yeah. I was, I was talking to Michael Levin, who works uh, on regeneration and bioelectricity, and I asked him this question of why is it that when... Uh, the cancer cell is differentiated from the cells around it that it becomes functionally immortal like it just will keep going forever and he he changed the question to like why is it that cells are mortal like as the the thing like why aren't we just norm like cells normally immortal and uh i've been wondering about that ever since like one of um like one of biology aging is a result of not just like a lack of care but like like a like a specific uh like evolved obsolescence like at a certain point we realize like after 30 we really can't do much more so then it just doesn't uh optimize for those those um traits because the first 30 years making kids and passing on is more important um it's just something i've been thinking about for a while i don't know uh you know it's i think it's the chicken and egg thing like is is aging a natural thing or is it um i guess it's, it's all natural but like is it na- is it natural to age or is it natural like 
do cells if you did if you gave cells everything they needed would they just continue to live and be happy or is there something in the cells that caused them to like kind of like a, uh, like ap- apoptosis but as a species um start allowing these things to happen uh so then we die off at a certain before we're just like useless um i think the result is that it kind of doesn't matter i mean we're just looking at the, well, the, no, the traits. It's actually a very good question uh, i think in principle almost all cells are naturally immortal i mean they they wanted mm. to fight look at uh, early life forms not they were doing they were all unicellular actually most organisms still are unicellular and they basically divide and divide and divide it's only in when, when we got multicellular organisms like humans or or the, the or the simplest uh, uh, well uh, many simpler multicellular organisms they have a germline and somatic cells but but in the, in that case somatic cells must be uh, kept in check because they don't want they are not supposed to divide all the time because you know you, you get cancer when it happens so you're right uh, natural wise they're supposed to divide and divide and divide but there are checks on that division and those checks are very strong otherwise we would get cancer much more often and much earlier and it doesn't happen but in uh, if you look at uh, like simple organisms like bacteria for example then it doesn't mean that they don't age because aging of course is simply uh, accumulation of damage and also in bacteria the molecules inside those bacteria they undergo damage but you can imagine what happens now. Uh, if one of these bacteria has a damaged molecule, it will simply not survive. So it will not have any offspring. But the others, the other cells, they will continue to divide. So there's continuous selection for cells that are free of damaged molecules. But of course, our somatic cells cannot do that. Maybe to some extent, our skin cells can do that. But for almost no other cells, they're capable of doing it. Our brain cells for sure cannot do that. They sit there for a whole lifetime. So when they begin to accumulate damage, at the end of the day, the cells will die. And that's probably what aging is all about. Not It's an accumulation of random uh, damage. And that occurs at a certain rate. And some organisms, like long, long-lived organisms, like humans, they're pretty long-lived, they apparently have systems that can hold it off for quite a while. So they're able to fix damage to a, quite a quite a good extent, but eventually they have to throw the towel and and you die, and that is determined by the needs where humans live. Again, humans are a little bit different than mice, but but they still normally used to die after in their twenties or so. Not our lifespan in the wild, so to say, uh, even a thousand years ago. Well, until the nineteenth century, it was never much more than uh, in your. 25, 26, uh, maybe 30 at most. That was what it was. It doesn't mean that we're not so now and then very old people. They managed to survive, but they were extremely rare. But now yeah. our life expectancy is much higher. We, we are dealing with a life expectancy of uh, over 70 years, not close to 80 years old. That has never happened in the history of, human, of humanity. Never, ever. Mm. So it's only because we have become smart to influence our environment. And we we are no longer going uh, quickly down the wayside. Nature doesn't care. I mean, again, you've done your reproduction and uh, you're going to be killed by some accident or a predator or a war, whatever it is that happens, or infectious diseases. But once we manage to control all that, we notice that still we are not immortal, apparently, because we still die. And progress at that level has sort of stopped almost. There's no longer any 
benefit from trying to uh, develop even more antibiotics or so, because we, we already have done everything that we can to stop that, uh, that killing that happened, that, that uh, humans were killed by either violence or, or infections, uh, easily to get an infection of dirty water. Now we have clean water, not? And not, no longer that much violence. We still complain about it, but overall, we made enormous improvements. I mean, the, the condition, the human condition has been, has improved so dramatically everywhere in the world. But that is, that is what it is. It's, it's over now. We, we cannot, I mean, to make that breakthrough, we have to change something very intrinsic in our species, in the human species. We have to begin to change the way we live, the way our genes work. And, and we don't know enough how to do that. I don't say that it will never happen. I cannot say that, of course. Since I'm a scientist, I know that there can be quite dramatic development suddenly. And it turns out that everybody who made predictions were wrong. But still, I mean, based on what I know now, I don't see any way to make improvements. Yeah, you can make slight further improvements in health so that older people are becoming even healthier. But you know yourself, when you look around, you see that people who are now uh, in their 70s, they, they, are, they can be in great health and they are still very mm. productive. That was never the case. It was so, when, in the old days, I mean, almost nobody survived until their 70s. And even if they did, they were not in very good shape. I can assure you that. Now some people are. Mm -hmm. so, are, are uh, do humans all have the same DNA mutation rate? Like the error, I'm going to, I guess, DNA yeah. error rate for, uh, like, I'm thinking like centarians with near Brazil. Um, with yeah, actually, like question, we, we don't know. We are actually studying mm. it because uh, we published a paper recently together with another group in uh, at the Sanger Institute in England, where we compared different animal species with different uh, lifespans. Like a mouse lives only three, uh, three, three years maximally, but a naked mole rat, for example, can live 10 times that lifespan. It's, uh, it's about the same size as a mouse. It looks the same as a mouse. It's also a rodent, but it's still interesting. So we showed when we measured the frequency of these mutational events, exactly as you suggest, we showed that it went, uh, there was a much higher rate of change in the mouse than in the naked mole rat, or mm. in the human for that matter. And the, and the English group, they showed they did many more species than we did. They show exactly the same thing. So yes, the short-lived species, their cells are subject to a higher rate of errors than the cells from the long-lived species. But again, that's not a proof that uh, that, that is the cause of the aging process. Yeah. Just uh, It could be the other way around. Not? It could be that there are other mechanisms that underlie that uh, lifespan difference that automatically also influence the mutation rate. We don't really know that. But, but that's definitely something we, uh, we are very interested in and we're studying that now to more detail, in more detail. Is it possible to induce? Um, um, no, yeah, there's definitely ways. I was just thinking of ways that they did in the 50s and 60s with radiation, but to induce uh, DNA mutation rate. So then you can see, like, uh, you could take the naked mole rat and find a, a, you have to test out, like, to get to the right level, but to induce the same mutation level as the rats oh. to see how it affects the longevity. Yeah, you mean to uh, increase the mutation rate? Yes. If the species live uh, shorter, if a long lived species. Mm -hmm. It's going to live shorter and age faster. Uh, that actually is much more complicated than most people think because the, the mutation rate is based on a large number of factors. Uh, the most important one you could argue is the 
capacity to repair damage in DNA. When you because DNA is damaged mm. like at an enormously high rate. There's lots and lots of damage, like breaks in the DNA or or all or chemical changes in it. But normally our cells are very good in repairing it. Occasionally they make a mistake. That's a mutation. It's really when they go wrong in repairing damage that give you the mutations. But uh, you could argue, well, uh, maybe we can uh, make a defect in a repair system. This has been done. And then uh, in many cases, the animals do age faster. It looks like they age faster. We've seen that in a mouse. My, my colleagues in, in, in the Netherlands, we collaborate very closely. We have a big NIH project together. They've done that. They made multiple uh, changes in these DNA repair enzymes. And then they noticed indeed that the, the mouse now is no longer aging normally, but much faster. We see what we generally assume are symptoms of aging appearing much earlier, but it's not an exact copy of aging. So you don't really expect it either because mutation rate is not really determined by one repair system. There are multiple repair systems. So how to make them all work a little bit less accurate? I do not know that. Nobody mm. knows that. So it's very difficult to actually do that. It seems like a simple experiment and it's not, but it is something that we are now trying to uh, approach uh, albeit in a little different way because we found out that the germ cells, they are much better in maintaining the integrity of the genome. Germ cells are very good at that. The, the mutation frequency in germ cells is actually very low. So it seems like very uh, peculiar, but it's not, of course. Think about it. Your germline, they have to, in a way, be immortal. Not They have to give rise to new organisms all the time. So, so they cannot have a very high mutation rate. And it's low. It's still there, mutations. That's why, of course, children are still born with, uh, with diseases caused by a mutation. But, but it's clearly much better than the somatic cells, as we demonstrated, probably a factor of 10 to 100. Now, recent research from others, our collaborators in Germany, have shown that actually that is deliberate. There is apparently a system that tones down your repair capacity in your somatic cells. So once the germ cells have given rise to the new organisms, repair is going less, becoming less. It's a whole complex system that's doing that. Why would that happen? Well, apparently there is a selective advantage in doing that because when you don't need a very good repair system, you shouldn't have it because it costs something, not? There's an energetic cost. And why would you spend, it, spend the effort on it? So evolution decided, well, the, I mean, when I use the word decision, it seems like evolution is like thinking something. It's not. It's basically a matter of random mutations in these systems that then uh, take care of lowering the uh, the repair capacity and therefore increasing the mutation rate. Apparently, there's an advantage in doing that. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. So there's an advantage. Uh, probably what I just said, maybe you, you don't want to waste energy. If, mm -hmm. if uh, in some way it would be necessary to live very long, then obviously you will get it. That's why longer lived species apparently got a better DNA repair system than the shorter lived ones. That's how it goes. But this is all very intricate and we, we, we do not really know exactly how it works, but we, we did make a lot of progress there over the last uh, decades for sure. And I can really see that uh, progress is, will, will increase. Another thing that's important also for uh, 
in, in terms of therapeutics is that we also shown, and others also, that stem cells are better able to maintain their uh, genome integrity. So uh, their mutation uh, frequency is also lower than normal somatic cells. And, and that is also logical in a way because stem cells, of course, they quite frequently, they have to jump in to replace cells that are worn out. So even in liver, there are stem cells around that can give you rise to new uh, differentiated cells. And you see that everywhere, even in the brain. So, so you can imagine why these cells are equipped with better uh, repair systems to keep uh, loss of sequence integrity, as we say, at bay, to, to let cells stay around longer with fairly low numbers of mutations. So these are very interesting developments. And now the next question could be, can't we mimic that? Can't we look at how mm -hmm. germ cells do it or stem cells do it and then sort of use it as the basis for therapy and make humans live longer because they all their cells now have a better repair? I don't know the answer to that, but definitely it's very tempting to go that way. Yes. Well, um, will that be a, something you guys will do as a, like a research question, or is that something you're going to partner with another uh, research, like the Netherlands, like the, the group like that, to do Absolutely. that type of research? We have collaborations now everywhere, a uh, group in Germany, group in the Netherlands, and of course, in the United States, we have multiple groups, one in California, as close as New Jersey uh, and New York. So absolutely, yeah, we are doing that. We have a, a big project together with the multiple groups that runs, uh, is funded by the NIH, and it runs since 1999. Uh, mm. Every five years, you need to competitively renew it. So you have to rewrite it for the next five years, and it will be reviewed like any other project. So it runs like so long. So clearly, the reviewers liked it, and I can only hope that they like this one too, because we... We just had to renew it again. I don't know the results of that. We will know uh, in a couple of months or so. But that, that work is being done there. That's exactly the new areas of research that we plan to do, to look at uh, germ cells, stem cells, and, and differentiated cells, to look at these differences, to understand why they are different, and to see if we can basically do something about the repair, uh, the DNA repair capacity in these cells. Can we make them, can we make differentiated cells mimic the germline better. Will that, will that be possible? It may not be possible, of course. There is a reason that evolution decided they shouldn't have such a high repair capacity. And I don't know what that reason is. I just mentioned something in terms of energetics. There may be a price to be paid, but we don't know what that price is. So we need to study it. It's very mm -hmm. basic research. And that's why I just said, it looks now, in my opinion, that we can never, we will never be able to bring lifespan of the human species to much more than what it is now. It's now probably like 115. Can we bring it to 150 or to 200? At the moment, I say no, it's impossible. There's clear evidence that there is a limit and we've reached the limit. But who knows when we come up with a breakthrough invention there. So, so here you can see that although I seem to be pessimistic about our prospects, I'm really not. I'm still, I'm just realistic and I do want to make the breakthrough inventions. And bring us there. Yeah. What well, uh, What do you think the end result? I always I look at things in a decade because that's how long it takes things to go from idea to market. If you were doing like clinical trials and what have you, what do you think will be the end result after ten more years, like you no know, end of twenty thirty, with your research? Well, I hope that uh, over the next five to ten years, 
we will have made inroads in better understanding what I just mentioned, these mm-hmm. differences between germ cells and stem cells and uh, normal somatic cells to understand better how that works. I, I can absolutely not predict if something more will result from that. Will we be able now to show maybe in, a, in some other organisms, you can do experiments with short-lived organisms to see if you can make improvements. That is a possibility, but that's why we included this time for the first time, worms who live only short, uh, like a week, two weeks or so. So we can basically very quickly see if there's an effect of an intervention. So that's why we do that. But I can absolutely not predict if we will be able to do this in 10 years. I, I cannot tell you if, it, if, if we could make such a breakthrough in 10 years or in 20 or in 100. It could be in five years. It could be in 100. It could be never. I, I, I just don't know. I can't give you the answer. Yeah. The, do, you, do you think with the research you're doing that people might be able to make like a diagnostics uh, to understand error rates, like either for early detection of cancer or I guess like uh, like epigenetic clocks, maybe like to refine those? Excellent question. That's an excellent question. That's precisely what we are uh, trying to do as a spin-off. Not, we're trying to uh, see if we can measure mutation frequency, mutation burden of your somatic cells, even see if we can measure in some way uh, if we treat cells, if we take blood cells, for example, do a treatment with a particular mutagen and see how many mutations you induce. And it could be that in cells from some people, we induce many more mutations than in others. And they may actually, therefore, be more susceptible to cancer. That's very reasonable to make that suggestion. We got some sort of, well, we got some data that we recently published on lung cells of smokers and non-smokers, we could see that, uh, first of all, when we take lung cells from smokers and non-smokers, we could easily see that mutations accumulate with age of the donor in in non-smokers much slower than in smokers. So what we always suspected, namely that smoking gives you a hell of a lot of mutations, which is the reason that you get cancer, was was true. You, You may say, well, but that's obvious. No, it was not. There were only two groups who basically showed that. One of these is ours, and the other one was a little earlier than us. That's the group in England. We both work on the same thing. That we are competitors in a sense, although very friendly. But uh, but they, we showed exactly the same thing. So it's really so that uh, smokers have much more mutations. But we also looked at uh, the amount of mutations in the lung cells of heavy smokers versus much lighter smokers. Mm. And we saw that many of the very heavy smokers do not have that many mutations, still more than non-smokers, but not that many, but they survived. They were very heavy smokers and they apparently survived. They all get, they all got lung cancer in our, the group of patients that we could study. But the question now is, why did these very heavy smokers who held out for a long time had fairly low numbers of mutations? Well, the logical answer is, well, because they had a better DNA repair. So they managed to keep mutations low for a much longer time than others who fell victim to the cancer much earlier than they did. So that's why the follow-up study that we want to do now is to check if maybe we can show that uh, when we take cells of people, we treat them as a mutagen, we can see that there are big differences. Some people are much more susceptible to mutagenesis than others. And that could be related 
to, first of all, cancer susceptibility, but maybe also to aging susceptibility. Maybe they age faster when they have a much higher mutation burden. But if you don't know the answer to that yet, they haven't really uh, studied that carefully. It's all mm-hmm. expensive and it takes time. And, and then you get all the problems I just mentioned. Uh, results are coming and I check that very carefully and I, des- I decide they're not really kosher. I su- suspect they're artifacts. Please do it again. And please include that control and that control and that control. I mean, what are we going to do when we publish all this kind of trash when it's not good? We don't want to do that. No? Mm-hmm. We want to make sure what we publish is the truth. That's, I think, the most important thing for scientists. It doesn't mean that you can never go wrong. It's certainly possible that you publish something and you believe it's true and it's not. And then when you find it out later, you will need to publish a correction, of course. That's what people do, fortunately. Most of us do that. But... Yeah. Well, in terms of using the technology to as a diagnostic to determine like you know risk rates and stuff the i've been wondering for some time so i've I've been reading about how like nutrition like when i was a kid it was like a pyramid and you had like different layers but now it's like a rainbow or something i don't know like people keep changing what nutrition is and so i always wonder you know taking smoking or drinking or any of these different things that people recommend or don't recommend you know really doing applying these types of uh you know diagnostics to it to see like what what threat risk are you actually improving or, or, or like risking your life by doing these things like people say uh like sugar like consuming a lot of sugar there's probably gonna it's gonna be like the new smoking but it's like what is actually the downsides of doing uh consumption of a lot of sugar or the downsides of of smoking like smoking's you know we're, we're getting closer there to know exactly what's going wrong and you know the rate that improves and stuff but i wonder for all these other things that people do recommend what 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 is the scientific basis for the recommendation sometimes i just feel like it's a lot of uh, well, we know these things suck and these things don't because like, you know, like the Mediterranean diet, like everyone says, that's a good stuff. But I wish there was just like a panel of diagnostics that go with every different diet. For, and then you'd have to like find the different people that eat the diet because everyone's bodies are a bit different, right? Even though we're all kind of uh, homogenous as a species because we don't have that much genetic uh, differentiation. I think it's because like there was not, like we kept almost getting wiped out for like famines and stuff. And then we kept building up from there. And that's why there's not that much genetic difference between people, but compared to like other species that were more diverse and what have you, but the separate comment, I almost, I always wonder how can we better know what's actually good for us to eat, to improve our health spans, just have the best maximum maximized life uh, versus just like, what's kind of like, sometimes it feels like a wives tale. Like I, I've talked, I've talked to like several nutritionists and like everyone had, it's kind of like they all have their different opinion on what you should be doing. And so I, I look for more stuff like this that's more scientifically grounded uh, to come in here and like kind of clear it up. Because I think everyone wants to be doing the right thing, but they just don't know what the right thing is. And it's very disheartening when you are being told the right thing and it turns out not to be the right thing. Yeah. Well, I, I can see your dilemma to some extent. This is mine also. Uh, I, I still think that uh, the effects of, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but to some extent you can imagine that these effects cannot be large, not? I mean, people, some humans have survived unbelievably bad conditions. Think of cancer, concentration camp survivors. Yeah. And they still manage to get very, very old. Of course, you, you, will, never, you will never be able to do a study, uh, although you, they did that in mice, for example. They fed mice, what they call a Western diet, and then they compared that with mice getting a normal healthy diet. And it's, pre- it's pretty clear there, there are differences in the lifespan and in, and in the health span between the two groups. So clear, that's the case. But that's pretty bad, no? That's a, the, 
or they feed these mice is not really good. So it would be the same as that humans only eat uh, sort of French fries or so. No? But, uh, but overall, my feeling is that all these specific diets, I don't, I'm not a believer in it. I, I, I believe the, the effects of that is marginal. It's the same mm. story about alcohol. Not some people say, yeah, you should drink two glasses of uh, alcohol. That's good for you. And others say, no, all alcohol is bad for you. Look, I mean, I think it's all marginal and you will never know because how would you know if you, you, you live a couple of weeks longer, but uh, yeah, you had to miss a good glass of wine. It doesn't sound to me like a good life. And, and we, we already have hit the, hit the jackpot in a sense. All humans, when you, are, when you stick to some reasonable advice, you go to the doctor frequently, you have a normal diet, you eat a salad occasionally, not only bad food, you don't drink yourself into a stupor, or at least not that often. You don't smoke. Smoking is bad, that's obvious, not? I think there's not a hell of a lot to gain from it. That's my opinion. I, I, so mm -hmm. I think people who make, make claims about all these components... Uh, I think you're really you're in the margin there. It's it's really not a big deal actually. I, I I'm more interested in a real basic breakthrough. Can we really uh, make humans live significantly longer, at least by a decade or more, by doing something? And I'm I'm afraid diet is not doing the job. I I really well actually I'm pretty sure it doesn't. I really think we have to look into very basic molecular and physiological processes and try to modify those, make them really different from what they are in humans. So make a human no longer a real human, but really change the species as such. It sounds like a little scary, but that is exactly, I think, what you have to do. People sometimes wonder, they say, well, why can't humans live like a bowhead whale? Not a bowhead whale lives 200 years. Well, if you really want that, you have to become a bowhead whale, I guess. But still, there may be a lot we can learn from bowhead whale molecules, molecular processes, and maybe we can use some of it to, to make some breakthroughs and really make us live much longer. But I have no idea what the price is that we have to pay for this. So that if you start to change such very basic fundamental processes of humanity, I don't know what, it's going, what the consequences of that is. So that's why even if we would reach that, if, in, if our research would eventually suggest that we can go there, I think then we have to really talk to other people about the ethics of it. That becomes very important. But I can assure you we have not reached that stage yet. Mm. I, was, uh, I think it was, I don't remember the book, but it's a sci science fiction book. And the, I guess he was like the vi villain guy. He was trying to, I was trying to do something weird. It was probably like the expanse or something with the proto-molecule. But the, he, he, they were saying like humans aren't really nat uh, natural anymore because evolution isn't really happening to the level that it was happening in other species. Like if you're born with an illness, like we have all these technologies to help you, support you. So like the natural, the normal evolutionary process, which is still happening, we're having mutations and stuff, but like as a species, we're not really changing all that much. We're all kind of like being locked in time. And um, that's well, kind of a weird thing. Yeah, so like science has to come in and, and like kind of make like the, the, the next leap, like evolution is taking us the furthest it can go. In, in several different ways. And now it's like science has got to come in, at least for you know aging to like move us along. Well, sure. I mean, uh, look at people who wear glasses, not or need to wear glasses. They're, yeah. I, 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 well, my, I, I just got eye surgery and new, mm. uh, new acrylic lenses. So my eyes are fine. But uh, I used to wear glasses all the time. I had to work. But 
By the way, that's technology also. So I was quite amazed when my uh, ophthalmologist told me, well, we are going to, because I had uh, cataract. And when you have begin, begin to develop cataract, they have to do that. And what they do now is they replace your eyelenses. And I I didn't even realize that at first. And and then he said, yeah, yeah, you will be able to see like when you were young. I said, my God. So, so, so that happened. But so that's also, in my opinion, it's really an important uh, development. Not a, it's really innovation, pretty important. So these, these things still happen, uh, definitely. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, playing with uh, all sorts of physiological processes, like evolution used to do, because there was quick selection opportunities, we don't really have that because we fix everything as soon as there is something and we can cure it in some way, then there's no longer the need for evolution to take the characteristic out by letting the subjects die, not because they stay yeah. alive. And quite often they can actually reproduce so the children have the same unfortunate mutation. Unless, of course, we try to get rid of the mutation, which are, I'm not talking about uh, gene editing here, that has been done by this guy in China once, but you can simply do... Uh, as people do now, uh, when when uh, they, they can check the, the embryo cells, not they can mm. check the cells when they do in vitro fertilization, check the cells and to see if the mutation is there. And if it's there, they they do not implant it. And only when it's not there, they implant it. So we can even at, the, at that level uh, do some sort of selection process. So that's not, of course, the same as what evolution does, but it sort of begins to mimic it in a way. So, yeah. I've uh, been thinking for some time, like, I wonder what would happen if, if, like, if everyone was IVF'd in terms of, like, making the next generation of kids. Like, we were able to control sickle cell anemia, for one. Uh, there's, a, there's just a lot of stuff that you you know at that point. And it's only, it's pretty expensive now if you want to do it, because most insurance won't cover it. But if everyone's kind of a part of the, you know, car, part of it, I think it'll bring down prices. Um, but if, if I, I don't know if I can ask you a personal question. It won't be about IVF. But the, when, when you got the new eye... Lenses. Yeah, lenses did that yeah. feel weird when they healed like did you like what that feel like because uh, like, i have glasses well, so i feel like maybe one day they'll do that to me so i'm just kind well, of curious well uh, the only thing i can tell you i mean for the rest uh, i had my eyes lasered uh, mm. 10 years ago so i could always see distant quite well so it, that mm. didn't change for me but what changed for me was reading because i i needed reading glasses already for 10 years and that's very clumsy because you, you get your iPhone and then you need to put up your glasses or else you can't see anything. So I had to pay $3,000 per eye extra. Then they also fix short distance. So, and he said, well, you may still need like these cheap uh, drugstore glasses occasionally, especially when there's no, not a lot of light to read the newspaper, but I can actually read the newspaper without glasses now. So it's fantastic. So that really... Mm-hmm made my day when I realized that. And I already saw, noticed that uh, I think a day or two after the surgery. So I was very, I'm very happy with that. So that's, that makes you feel differently. You're absolutely right. But the yeah. distance was, was already okay. So I never noticed. Yeah, we recently had a lady on here who is the CEO of uh, Brain Effect, who basically is de- detecting an old and young people, but the really cool, in my opinion, I thought it was really cool what she, they can do with the younger kids they can detect if they have hearing and vision problems sooner and uh in detecting it they can stave off developmental issues so apparently like 10 percent of kids that are thought to have autism it's just because they have like a hearing or, or visual problem and then when they're in, in class they can't like I, I remember when i was a kid we talked about this but like 
vision and hearing is just so an, an important thing. And with kids don't have this type of technology, like they don't do as well. And apparently it gets, it, it's like, it's logarithmic almost, you know, like if everyone's discouraging you in, in school, it doesn't really go well for you. Um, and if it's just like your eyes weren't good enough, your hearing wasn't good enough. And now we have the technology, it, it, even if it's just like artificial or like smaller stuff to detect and do something about it, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so we're talking, you talked earlier about, um, uh, scientific evolution, just uh, not evolution, innovation. And I, I wrote down this question because Oppenheimer's coming out, the the the, oh, yeah. the movie, and it. yeah, and uh, I just uh, the uh, Christopher Nolan's thesis is basically Oppenheimer's like the greatest man of the century. And so, I, 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 as someone who wrote a book and like looked at the history of things, who are some of the big people that don't normally get you know picked on in terms of like doing great work in the last centrally century and do you think it's oppenheimer do you like agree with his thesis that oppenheimer's the number one guy well or would you put it as someone else well no actually i do i do agree with that wasn't it oppenheimer mm. who basically uh well i can't you can't say he sort of invented quantum quantum theory but he was one of the main people involved in that well as you know he even had he was good friends with einstein not or at yeah. least they were at, at Princeton together. and But they had different ideas. I mean, Einstein didn't, didn't like quantum theory, but Einstein was wrong, not? I mean, uh, Oppenheimer was right about that. So, yeah, in that sense, I tend to agree with that. I think he was really one of the greatest uh, scientists who ever lived, as far as I know. I mean, uh, look, there are many great scientists, I think, but definitely, uh, yeah, he was, he was one of mm. them. Little naive, maybe, as Einstein again realized. Einstein was less naive. I mean, he was, of course, hit by this McCarthy uh, witch hunt. Not, uh, yeah. I haven't seen the movie, by the way. I did so, but I'm, it yeah. must probably be in. Have you seen the movie? No, I think I think it's coming out soon. But I, I'm looking forward to re, uh, seeing it. But like, it segues into the next. I was going to ask you, like, you know, what books you're going to you recommend next? And I was going to go. Oh, you can re read this book, which I, I just picked up. Uh, no, I didn't. But, no, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading a book right now about uh, a book by Peter Heather about uh, the, the triumph of Christianity, where he basically uh, describes the factors that gave rise to Christianity to become so powerful in the European Middle Ages. It's, my, it's a new book that I'm writing, and that's why I'm interested in that, because my, I was trying to figure out why it was Europe where the industrial revolution was first and not in Asia. It, was, it would have been much more likely that it would have happened in China or in India because they were much more advanced than Europe until actually the 18th century. Most people do not realize it. They always think that Europe was already ahead in the 15th century, but that was absolutely not the case. It was still India who was the largest economy in the world then. 20% of the whole world economy was India alone. And China was not far behind. Europe was a, a very small fragment of that. But, uh, but so the question is, why did it happen? What, what happened? What, is, what were the main factors? And in my, there's also the title of the book, uh, Faith and Fortune. Mm -hmm. Faith is the Christian religion who did a lot there. And fortune is just being lucky. Europe was simply extraordinarily lucky in everything that happened. But Christianity did a lot. People do not really realize that they were the ones who made, laid the foundation of modern science. It's very strange to say that now because people always think that the church is, is a blockade. The church resists science, not at all. In the early Middle Ages, in the 12th century, when it started, 
the church wanted scientists to be there and discover things, understand how life worked, because that was the reason God gave you a brain, to essentially try to understand it, because God could also explain it to you in detail, but God doesn't do that, because he gave you a brain. Do it, figure it out. Mm. So that's why they began to, that's why, of course, science started with the church, not they were all church people who basically made all those grandiose inventions. And they started out with uh, Peter Abelard, who basically uh, made the argument, look, I don't believe anything, nothing. You just have to prove it to me first. And now you actually are there, not? you already laid the basis of modern science. That was really not the case with science in India and science in China. It was only the case in the early Middle Ages where Peter, people like Abelard, not the only one, came up with this. They made it clear, you really have to prove something. You cannot really take anything for granted. And that's how science began to develop based on that. And later, later of course, you've got, you've got Cartesian uh, science, not René Descartes, and others who continued along that same path. And that basically gave rise to development of science, inquiries, just for being science for cur curiosity alone. And you could see that uh, there was this uh, burst in the 17th century. So science was available. There was a big body of knowledge available to Europeans. It had no influence until the beginning of the 19th century on industrial processes, but then it was there when they needed it. I just mentioned the steam engine. They could never have developed a, steam, a practical steam engine without this body of knowledge that was collected over time by people who simply collected it because they were curious. And, and they could do it because of the iron laws of science. They knew how to practice science because they learned this from their predecessors who learned it from their predecessors who learned it from people like P Peter Abelard. And they knew already, no, no, we don't believe anything. We just have to prove it first. We set an hypothesis and now we try to test it and then we can reject it or not. That's sort of the argument, no? but that was unique for Europe, but nobody noticed it in initially. It seemed like uh, something that happened, but nobody cared until there was an enormous influx of money in, uh, from India mainly. Of course, the British, they stole about anything you can imagine from, from India. Not India was 20% of the world economy then, now it's only one or 2%. So, so the British stole everything. I don't say that because I want to say the British are bad. The Indians would have done the same thing the other way around. Humans are humans, they're everywhere. But the British happened to be in, this, in their position to conquer India, which was basically sheer luck that they managed to do that. If you really look at it carefully, it was luck. It shouldn't have happened, it happened. But the same is true for the enormous power of the Christian church in the Middle Ages. It shouldn't have been there. It was basically went against all odds, but they did manage to do it. So you would say, okay, people seem to think it was natural that a that the Catholic Church was so powerful in the Middle Ages, it was not. The power was normally, as you could imagine, where it was at a king or, or an emperor, not in the European Middle Ages. Why not? Because there was no longer a powerful single emperor. Not? It was spread out the power. And the church, they managed to find a way to dominate the hearts and soul of the people. So the, the church could even tell an emperor, uh, kneel in the snow for me. You do what I tell you, because otherwise you will have no afterlife. And they did it. They obeyed them. So the whole European world obeyed the church in Rome. That's why they could do all these things like developing science. Well, it's, there are too many factors. I'm not going to lecture mm -hmm. for ages, but that's sort of the argument. There are many individual factors 
They did a job. The church was a major one, but there were a number of others as well. And they all managed to come together to meet each other at the right time, early 19th century. And then you saw this explosion of uh, inventions and this explosion of economic growth. Economic growth was always very low, like 1% or so. And suddenly you saw it take off dramatically. That happened nowhere else than in Europe. And, and I tried to collect evidence that all those factors together, they basically, they, they lightened it up. That suddenly you saw that explosion. But again, that book is not has not been published yet. So it's yeah. Well, it sounds interesting. I definitely read it when it comes out. The what were the scientific institutions of India? I only know the West really when it comes to scientific institutions. What was the uh, leading up to 18th century? What was India's and China's scientific like well, institutions? India, India was mostly mathematics, which reached Europe uh, through the Arabs, in fact. And like, for example, the number zero, as far as I know, was an Indian invention. China has done quite a lot more. Fairly simple things uh, as, uh, um, like they already had steel, big steel uh, factories already uh, uh, in, in the second century or so. Uh, they had uh, many, like, what happened in, in China already, let's say, between 500 and 200 BC, they call it the Warring States period. Mm -hmm. And they uh, there were like five, eventually, first you had a lot of states, uh, hundreds or so, but then you ended up with five powerful ones, and they fought each other to the death, and eventually there was only one. During that enormous war, they invented everything from the crossbow to advanced uh, agricultural methods because they needed to feed these huge uh, armies of theirs. And you can see that they made many, many inventions that eventually ended up in uh, in the West. They they they, they just came there. The way to uh, to harness a horse, for example, the Chinese found it out how to do that in an efficient way so that the horse could actually pull big loads. The Romans didn't understand that. So uh, horses in the Roman times they they were pulling uh, a cart based on their neck. So it 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 it. Uh, inhibited their, their, uh, the way they were breathing. So they could never pull a lot. But, Europe, but Europe took over the invention in China and they began to improve uh, agriculture. But there were many inventions uh, made in China. Actually, most of them. There was a famous uh, uh, British uh, historian, I believe in the 19th century, well, I'm blank on his name now, but he, he made an enormous book, multiple parts of all the inventions ever made in China. But again, that, those were fairly practical inventions. There was no logical science in China compared to what was developed in the European Middle Ages. Well, I wonder if it was the, a lot of people consider the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War to be the first real world war because it, it spanned the globe as yeah. one of the reasons that um, technology, like it's like the Warren States region, uh, war, I think in population is probably equivalent to that. In terms yeah. of like, uh, no, you're right. Actually, uh, people made historians made comparisons between that Warring States period and the European period between uh, maybe the 17th century and the 20th century. They compared that to the Warring States period in China because that was the same thing, not a fight to the death for hegemony. It, it depended who would ended up number one. I mean, Napoleon made a bit, Hitler made a bit, and, and others in between. That it was a continuous struggle for who would be dominant. So it was very similar to China. And of course, that 
did give rise to multiple uh, inventions, as this kind of things usually do. Not, I mean, yeah, that's definitely the case. But it's not, it's not the the only factor. It was definitely mm. one of them. This this yeah. fierce competition between European states, definitely. Yeah. When will the book come out? Is there like a a place to stay up to date? In January, I promised them to give me give them the final uh, uh, book uh, before the end of the year. Well. I will keep you informed if you if I have if you send yeah. me an email I will. Uh... Oh sweet yeah no I'm always looking for books like this. Um, well it's it's different perspectives. I just recently was reading a book called The Dawn of Everything or whatever. It's about like I wasn't a fan of it. I actually returned the book, but the basic premise was that uh, the modern world most people think of it as like Hobbesian or Rousseauian in terms of like how the past was like it was egalitarian or was it like authoritarian in terms of like how people structure themselves uh you know socially and uh they just spent like 800 pages i don't even know how many pages just arguing that point over and over again and uh, i didn't like that but i like this like that sounds more constructive uh because they just like it was like every fourth word was just like Rousseau and Hobbes um i'm a big fan of like nonfiction. That gives me a different perspective on understanding something uh like uh kissinger's diplomacy where she talks about like oh. how the social order like that's yeah. really interesting because like oh i've never thought of like everything yeah. came from like westphalia in like the 1840s or whatever like the whole yeah. structure of like the modern world um like that's pretty interesting so this sounds kind of like that like but for technology yeah i i, I didn't read uh, kissinger's last book but i read his book on china and uh, a couple of his other books and um what's the name Mishima, not Mishima. um uh, what's the Japanese? I blank on his name now. Who wrote this beautiful books on uh, how states were formed in the past? So mm. Westphalia, for example, is a, of course a major uh, landmark there. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, I, I can see your point. I, uh, I like those kind of books also. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for anyone listening in if they have uh, any recommendations for either of us on this topic. Because never know, we don't know, which is half the fun of like talking in a way that well, other people can listen in. Well, what you just told me about uh, Rousseau, of course, he fantasized about uh, the old, uh, the original humans that they were living in peace and they were uh, so nice. But of course, we all know now it was the opposite, not? In the old uh, days, the real old days I'm talking about, they were all killing each other like massively. The amount of blood was the highest then, even the 20th century, with all its wars and destruction, was still peaceful as compared to... Uh, totally uh, uncivilized people in like in New, Gu- New Guinea. The, well, the, now I guess they are no longer there, but in the 100 years ago, there were still these tribes in New Guinea who, who cut off heads and collected them and they were automatically f- went out for war every uh, season, uh, like like the Romans did in, in, in a long time ago. So those were really bloody uh, times as compared to uh, even the 20th century. So you can imagine, it, it only, things only improve. People do not want to see that. But since the state came along, uh, organized it, whether you're talking about a dictatorship, which, of course, virtually 99% of our times we lived uh, under dictatorships, of course. So uh, they were actually pr- quite peaceful. The Roman, Emperor, the Roman Empire was peaceful, but it was a dictatorship, of course. It was a military dictatorship. But it was uh, probably the longest period of peace humanity in that part of the world ever ever experienced so yeah it's uh... yeah the there was um i think in the book they don't talk about this in the book this is just a, a general idea i have so there's the 
it's not Humurabi. Yeah, Humurabi's code, where it's like if you do this, you lose a foot. You do X, yeah, Y, and Z. Yeah. Like they're like these roles. I think I, sometimes I feel like people don't realize that, like, the ability to lock someone up in jail and you know say like, hey, that's your punishment, as to be your punishment, really requires a modern state because you have to have such an abundance where someone stealing from you doesn't cause you to lose your family or your complete li- livelihood you know in the in the olden days someone steals cabbage from you it's like oh who cares so why would you why would you do that right but back then it means that you can't even feed you can't feed yourself and you, your farm might go destitute and that means like the like it's a terrible thing i think um when i look at the past it was bloody because there was not that many like you you do not have the structures for rules and peace to really reign because of how chaotic it was there wasn't like a lot of people they didn't all really have like the same ideas on how to do things there's a lot of like synthesis that needed to happen over the over the years for us to come to a place where people felt like there was an, enough abundance for people to be uh i would say a little bit more generous and their like punishments as one example of it um and so i imagine it's the same way you know it's like for any 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 other thing it's like you really can't have anything other than like authoritarianism going on when you're you're starving you know like when you're there's a lot of like these Native american bands that would go from some parts of the season doing air culture and then the other parts of the season going out hunting and so when they were doing hunting they had authoritarian like one leader doing it but then the during egalitarian times are ruled by chiefs but they were kind of picked based on who did the best job uh during the hunting so it's kind of in a way it's not egalitarian but it's a little bit more like democratic i think i think like you become more liberal the more liberal means like freedoms and stuff uh i don't know if like people have different views of what liberal means nowadays but in terms of freedoms uh based on like the abundance of society i think yeah the original tribal structure of society you're right i mean those were that came close to true democracy i guess but although it was still the strongest male mm-hmm. who basically were leading the, the tribe i guess and they tended to fight among each other also quite a lot so it was still pretty bloody uh, situation i would say but yes that was uh, tribal so in a way you can argue it was sort of democratic and the state the emergence of the state began to change that and but overall i think the state has done a lot of good i mean now it, there's yeah. a discussion now not i mean uh, are states good or bad a lot of people especially the more right-wing ones they uh, are vehemently against the state uh, but I guess the state can do a lot of good, as it does in China, in a sense. Which, uh, you have to be very uh, careful uh, to say that nowadays. But China is doing a great job, and it all comes from the, the Central Communist Party. I have to say, I probably wouldn't want to live there, because I'm not the type who wants to be told what books to read. I, it's mm-hmm. not, doesn't, doesn't appeal to me. And that's also something that the state is doing. But overall... The state controls everything and they control it quite well. I mean, children are educated in a quite pleasant way. They they are learn not only to do their homework, because when they don't do it, they feel a responsibility to their peers and of course their teachers and their parents. And it seems that here we have sort of lost that a little bit. And to some extent, it's also because there's chaos. I guess in, in the Chinese educational system, it's not there. They have strict rules and they obey it. And I don't think they uh, become so much worse of it because I have a lot of students there and they're pretty smart and, and very nice. I can see that. So, mm-hmm. of course, it could. China has its uh, awful history. Not We know uh, how bad things were under Mao. Thus far, they have not repeated that mistake. 
which they easily could have done, not look at uh, the Soviet Union when it collapsed and, and Russia came out with all the other countries and, and, and Russia was a chaos. I mean, it tried to implement democracy and uh, capitalism immediately and we've seen what happened there. Not good. Mm-hmm. So that's, of course, what the Chinese say all the time. They say we did it much better because we kept our party. And, uh, but, you know, we are living not there. We're living here. We have a different history. Mm-hmm. So we would not be able to, we don't like it. We don't, we couldn't live there. That's what yeah. I tell them when I have discussions with them. I say, look, you, that's your system. You have a different history than I have. I'm used to be, to be free and can look at all books, that, read all books that I, there is no censorship. I can go to all the websites I want to do. I was in my apartment in Shanghai last week still. I looked at CNN. They, they have CNN. And then they mentioned, okay, the next uh, is about Hong Kong. The word Hong Kong and it becomes black. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I call censorship. Well, it's not something that, that appeals to me, but I do recognize that they have done a hell of a lot of good things uh, for their population in a very yeah. short time. Also, I, I, yeah, I like Chinese history. The culture is very interesting to me. I don't know if I I could visit because it sounds like a scary place. You know, like the there's a lot of like bad things that happen. And... Um, so I'm glad that you know works out for you. I don't know, but no, I, I, was, I hear uh, like in 2019 I've been there almost for the whole year, but mm-hmm. I couldn't go back. But now I went back for the first time, and uh, yeah, it's still very pleasant. It's a pleasant country. I mean, it's not, uh, yeah, and of course it improved so much, so enormously. I mean, most people now they live a good life. They have, uh, they are wealthy. They, the children, the current generation, uh, is completely different. They never experienced uh, Mao and the chaos that, that that of the Cultural Revolution. There's a new generation, so they they know only uh, their smartphones, and uh, they can order and buy whatever they like. And they, they see this enormous wealth, and it's all clean and beautiful uh, subway trains and high speed railway, and everything is all taken care yeah. of. So that's what they are used to. So they cannot understand yeah. why America is angry with us. They say that they cannot understand that we are nice people. Look at us. Said yeah, but it's a little more complicated than that. But but it's sort of. Yeah. So you can yeah, go. I, I can tell you that I don't see. Okay, you. good. Yeah. Well, I, I hear reports that they, uh, if you're like politically not aligned with the main party, those people, like they'll like, there's like these giant farms where they'll like harvest your organs. Like these are like, like, like the news reports have gone in and found these these like uh, medical centers where they just like forcibly harvest people's organs and give it to other people. And so I don't want people to steal my organs. So yeah. that's my. <laughs> well, look, <laughs> I mean. I, it didn't happen never, to you, so I know. So that's good. I'll oh, stay no, wherever it, you it, stayed. It, it didn't happen to me, but there are, of course, stories. Uh, but to some extent, just like bogeyman stories. But mm. the, the fairly recent history of China, and then you're going like back f- for half a century ago, ago, the last days of Mao were not pleasant. And yeah. I, I do believe that they had things like that, that they took organs from uh, prisoners, for example, in camps. Why not? I mean, they did these things, but I don't think they do that now. I mean, look, uh, you can never say no, not. I mean, uh, now there are still stories that uh, horrible things happen in China. How would I How would I be able to say no about it? I don't know. I, of course, they wouldn't tell me that, no? I was in Xinjiang yeah. in the West, uh, the, the Uyghur province. Uh, it looked fairly good to me. It looked like the Chinese government pumped enormous amount of money in there to give them beautiful airports and train systems and subway systems and 
people were happy and they were eating well in restaurants. But of course, they would never take me to, to concentration camps where they put people who are against the regime. I wouldn't mm. know. That. I would only find that out probably when they would decide they should arrest me for some reason. So and then I would probably say, oh, why, would, why, why was I so stupid to ever go there? I wouldn't know. I cannot tell you one or the other. I can really tell you that I thought it was a rather uh, pleasant experience and I never noticed a, a single thing of an authoritarian state. I mean, there were red traffic lights and I, I'm used to jaywalking in New York and I didn't see a reason to change my habits in China. But many Chinese do that too. And there were police officers and I never really saw them making a big deal out of it. It's, uh, mm. I never saw any unpleasant situation. People were just seemed to be living their lives and seemed to be pretty happy. So. Well, that's good to hear because, uh, you know, with the news, you only hear the, the bad stuff. I'm glad that people can live and have happy lives. That is what but... my Chinese postdocs say. They say that, uh, yes, they always complain about CNN. They call it uh, uh, fake news, undoubtedly because of uh, Donald Trump. But they say that because they say they always show bad things about China. Why don't they say the good things? There are many good things. They never say it. Well, mm. I don't know. <laughs>